All right. Looks like we're live. Uh, every time I've done this and not actually put a proper intro video on there, uh, I've always had to go and check whether it's live. But it's been pretty consistent and it does go live. So I'm assuming we're live. So good morning to you, Mark. Good afternoon to you, Kane. And you know, if uh, if we're not live, then we're just going to have a good conversation regardless. So Indeed. good either way. Indeed. I think we are live. I think we are live. What would we'll, be good to check is to see whether we're live on, on each of our LinkedIn's, which is... Uh, which will be interesting to find out. But I'm sure that uh, we will find that out uh, at some point in time. Yeah. Kane, you were just mentioned, we were just talking about, you know, how we keep track of all the different resources and articles we're looking at and uh, what we use for note taking. And I still have not found a good system of taking notes. Like that was no joke. A New Year's resolution last year is to have a good note-taking system and I've been thumbing through it and can't keep track of any of the stuff that I want to keep track of. And I don't know if you found a solution. I know a lot of people are interested in that. No. So I use Evernote, as I mentioned, and um, Evernote for me was when I first started using it was decent because it was the first note-taking tool, purpose-built note-taking tool that wasn't like a standard notepad or like I was using a Windows-based one, Notes, I can't remember if it's called Notepad or something. Uh, and Evernote was the first thing. This is like probably about, I would say, knocking on eight years ago, nine years ago maybe. Um, and it was fantastic. And over the years, I've got so many different notebooks and they're not all organized because sometimes I'll create a note for a meeting and I'll take notes in that meeting, but I won't put it in the meetings folder. And so I've got content ideas over here and business ideas over there and meeting notes over there. And it's just a nightmare, a nightmare to keep on top of. What I have started doing, which you might find interesting, which is cool about Evernote is whenever I create an article idea or draft if i tag it with trello it'll push it through to our content schedule in trello and so basically i manage it all in trello (laughs) that's that's how i've come to manage my notes is by hooking them all up to trello and managing it there oh that's awesome yeah i was talking to uh, a friend of mine just about this a few weeks ago and uh, he actually recommended this uh, book from david allen called getting things done and i bought the book and i opened up the book and you just flip it open and it looks like the most boring thing you've ever read. You know, like it's all just tables and like flow charts. And you're like, this is going to be grueling. Uh, and I told him that. And he said, like, Mark, you got to be patient. You got to like stick with it. It's actually really interesting. And uh, he was totally right. And one of the things that they recommend in the book is some system of note taking that almost has like a chain of uh, different concepts. And that helps us remember them. It helps us kind of connect all the information. So when you take one note, you don't just want to leave it there in its own separate system and forget about it. You want to try to link the new information to the old information that you've done. And anyway, that's one of the things, Kane, that I think uh, Evernote might be really good at doing. And I kind of want to get back and explore that or look at alternatives or something. Yeah, well, the thing with Evernote is you need to actually, it doesn't do it itself. You need to basically use a little piece of middleware, if this, then that. I don't know if you've used that before. Um, so yeah, you use that to basically, it, it bridges the gap between Evernote and Trello, basically. Um, but yeah, no, so, note-taking is a nightmare. So you have a third-party tool that you use to bridge uh, Trello and Evernote? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. My yeah. goodness. This tech yeah. ecosystem... Uh, good transition is so freaking complicated. Like, uh, 
you know, basically one of the things that I think we're all seeing in technology in general is the idea that you have all of these highly capitalized tech companies that have built these awesome platforms or these awesome features. And now you have all of these different, like very effective and successful and productive applications. And they're all trying to talk to each other now. So integrations is like the big name of the game. And, uh, you know, when you're, you're trying to buy a new technology, implement a new technology, you know, you almost have to write a checklist of here's all the things we have. How many of these does it integrate with? Um, unless you have like your in-house, you know, development team that's setting up APIs. But um, honestly, uh, that takes a lot of time and a lot of money. And I think not, not everyone has those resources. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting space to to play in between, which is what if this, then that are doing. And Zapier, you've come across Zapier before. Yeah, we're uh, a customer. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So that that's basically what the, the whole entire business is being built on trying to connect things together. I think what's good, what's decent is that now it's not quite there, I don't think, but it's at least understood and a lot of companies are moving towards more of an open way of handling their business and providing services, understanding that if you're even if you're a sales force, you're still providing a suite of capabilities and not necessarily all capabilities that a business or a user needs to get through their day. And so being open, allowing other systems to integrate into yours and you integrate into others is at least in the for the most part becoming almost like a norm, would you say? Yeah. We talk about that at, at Balto all the time. And it's interesting because there's almost like a threshold where if you're really open and you're too small, being open is a risk mm-hmm. um, because essentially, uh, and I'll explain in a second, but if you pass a certain size, then being open is a benefit and it creates this like positive feedback loop. But one of the things that you know we want to be careful of is the last thing we want to do is have an API for every single feature in our application because if we do that, then everything gets commoditized, right? Mm-hmm. We don't want to just say, oh, you want to buy our speech-to-text capability? There's the ASR, the automatic speech recognition. Do you want to buy our event recognition or labeling? There's our event recognition. You can buy that. Do you want to buy our real-time audio processing engine? There's our real-time audio processing engine. So how do you make sure that you open things up and allow people to kind of uh, pull your data and mix and match the different capabilities you have without breaking it into such small components that you commoditize it and get rid of the essence of what you're, what you're really building. I think uh, uh, companies like Nuance have done a really, you know, now Microsoft, have done a really good job of navigating that sort of balance between having something proprietary and closed and something open and uh like componentized, if you will, that people can can feed from or pull from and use on their own. Mm, interesting. Do you think there is value in, uh, so I can understand what you're saying there from the point of view of like if you're in nuance and you have a bunch of different capabilities and therefore if you itemize your individual capabilities, you potentially um, commoditize them. Do you think there's value in companies progressing those individuals so for for example um you mentioned there something like asr or something like nlu or something like i don't know it could be dialogue management it could be analytics it could be you know sentiment analysis any one of those things um and more lots of data labeling for argument's sake there's lots of different companies that have a suite of technology that provide all of those services. And this, this is just, this is just talking about kind of like NLP 
sort of things. But beyond that, in, in the wider technology space, there's a lot more than that even. Um, do you think there's value in companies specializing in an individual capability? Yes, but you got to be careful. And right, if you think about it, if you specialize in a capability, um, your what is a product, right? A product is is you know you have usually multiple capabilities. Usually, a product doesn't do just one thing. Even think about like scissors or a knife. It's not like scissors and a knife are meant to cut just one thing, except a box cutter. Okay, so we can say you know that your your product is a box cutter. Well, that means that your market is boxes. What about all the other different things that that you might want to cut? What about think boxes that are easy to open? Or what about you know different size of boxes or, or something like that? So I think when you specialize, you can own a specific segment, but you have to be careful that it's so narrow that first of all, box cutters are commoditized. Anyone else can make a box cutter. So then you have to advertise world's best box cutter. And then you go with, uh, we have the best, the sharpest blade and the most ergonomic handle. And then someone else releases their ergonomic handle. So I think you can specialize, but the more contained what you make is, in some ways, it's easier to copy unless you go really, really deep. And if you go really, really deep, it means you have to have like a lot of really awesome R&D experience. So your science team and your engineering team can create you know, uh, a sharper blade faster than the other team that's also trying to create a sharper blade. Um, so if I were to kind of zoom out again for a second, you know, what is a product? A product is usually like a collection of capabilities that you're offering uh, to your customers and being able to package up those capabilities in a way that all work together and just solve the overall need better than the other thing, I think is one of the ways that you differentiate a product. And you know, there's a classic uh, case study of Southwest Airlines. And they, um, I think they called it like the value curve or something. And they you know, said, look at Southwest Airlines and what dimensions of their product they're um, optimizing for and what dimensions of the product they're letting you know go by the wayside. You know when they started, they weren't for the business traveler, so business travel was down. Um, you know they uh, you know were less expensive, so price you know was, was up in terms of being a, a positive. Uh, they were super fast and convenient, so fast and convenient was up. Reliable was up, and then like amenities and different things you get like in-flight meals and things like that were kind of down. So they they crafted all these different attributes together to make the Southwest Airlines experience. And I think if you just said, uh, we're the cheapest, we're just working on price or we're just the most convenient, um, I think that then you can get into a convenience battle um, and you could find that advantage being uh, chipped away. So I think there's, there's a lot of parts to it, but I would say in general, specializing is something to be to be careful about. I don't know what your take mm -hmm. is on on that. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I can see where you're coming from there. Yeah, um, it's interesting the airline, the airline example. So I'm not sure if Ryanair exists in the US. Does it? Not does that Ryanair? I'm familiar with. No. no. So it's 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 a airline based and and founded in Ireland, I believe, and it is notoriously known for ridiculously cheap prices, and that's basically what the angle it's gone for. It, it's it's kind of commoditized its air flights based around the cheapest prices possible. And from a customer experience standpoint, the need to drive down price 
negatively impacts customer experience in a bunch of different ways. So they they do not give any leeway whatsoever in terms of if your bag is just slightly too big for carry on you cannot carry it on and you have to pay to check it in they don't reserve any seats automatically and in fact if you don't pay to reserve a seat and i don't this i don't know if this is confirmed from ryanair but i've only flown with them twice and it happened on both occasions and the people who i fly with or flown with uh, said that it happens all the time which is that if you don't reserve your seats they will purposefully sit one booking. Like let's say, if you make one booking of four flights, they will purposefully sit you all over the plane. So everything is about cost. And even the staff, I was talking to one of the uh, airline uh, people, you know, serving drinks and stuff like that. And he told me that they don't get paid unless the plane is in the sky. So they're so hell bent on cost that they don't even pay their staff until the plane's flying. <laughs> and so, Going back to that kind of point of if you commoditize you and, and you're focusing on one thing in order to commoditize, which is, you know, wide availability and really low prices, which Ryanair have, um, everything else suffers because the customer experience is terrible. Everyone gets off a Ryanair plane feeling resentful because they didn't want to pay for an extra seat and they didn't want to be, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, basically. So, yeah, I think if you, I think if you, if you, try and specialize in that case in low cost flights, then not only is the competition from like EasyJet and Jet2, but you also leave the door open for a poor customer experience, which is arguably the most important thing you should be doing is providing a good customer experience. It's so interesting because it means that there's only like two options. One is that they're looking for a super low maintenance traveler who's super cheap, who's like, hey, throw at me whatever crap you got. Whatever like problems can come up, I'm cool with it. Or they're prioritizing um, like new customer acquisition over retention. So maybe actually in their model, they're saying, we only expect with you to fly with us twice. <laughs> you're going to do it once and you're going to be happy with how much money you saved. And you're going to be like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that again. You're going to do it a second time and the flight's going to be delayed and you're going to miss your Thanksgiving or your Christmas and uh, we're going to charge an extra hundred bucks for your bag. And then you say, screw that. I, you know, I, I can't do that again. I want to upgrade. And I can tell you, I actually had that experience with one of the budget airlines uh, here in the US where you know I, I flew on that airline and I said, great, I'm saving money. I'm so excited. And I remember just like feeling like the experience was... Um, I think they were delayed. I think that uh, like the plane was like kind of dirty, and um, and I remember feeling like I don't know if this is worth it. Um, hmm. So maybe they're just prioritizing like you know getting new customers in the door with uh, you know their you know, particular you know business model. But if I were to kind of zoom it out to technology for a second, you know I wonder you know because you know Balto we come from the highly funded venture capital world where the smartest technologists in any area are like battling to produce the best thing. And, um, and you know, there's some ways where like specialization, you know, really m makes sense there, but like, there's no way that we are going to have the best speech to text model in the world because there's thousands of, you know, engineers at Google and Amazon and nuance and Microsoft. And, you know, that, are specifically dedicated on having the best speech text model in the world. So we'll have one that is like in the middle, if you will. Like
like it's within the industry acceptable standards. It's good. We have a lot of customization. You can make it better over time, but it won't be the absolute best speech text model in the world. So then we have to figure out like, you know, what are the areas that we do want to be the absolute best in? Um, and I think that, that, that you kind of have to almost make a menu of the things that you want to be great at and the things that you don't. Uh, but I think if you just make one thing, and that means if someone else copies that thing, then you're no longer the best. So it's, I think it's about packaging together the experience a little bit more than it is specializing on one dimension, at least in the tech world where there's a, so much cash out there and people are all, you know, have these huge R&D budgets to try to be the best in every dimension. Mm. And and the the kind of, what am I trying to say? The, the total is often greater than the sum of the parts, isn't it? So if you have, even if you have everything average across the board, you have average ASR, you have average NLU, you have average in Balto's case, you know, the visual elements that you present to agents, let's say that's by average. And let's say everything is average. All of those capabilities roll together to provide a product that is aimed at delivering a certain amount of value or certain uh, bunch of capabilities. Even average components put together in that instance leads to a better product than individual capabilities in isolation not put together. If that, does that make sense? You're better off almost putting them all together to create that package arguably leads to more value. That's, I think, so right. And you got to figure out, um, first of all, how do you put them together in an above average way, right? And that's a little bit the the direction that tech is taking. We started talking with like this open ecosystem. You pull this model from that tech company and you pull this data set from another company and then you pull uh, you know this server architecture from that company, and you're you're taking all these components, and really what you got to do is like craft them together in an above average way. And the second thing is you you like generally want to decide like what are one or two things that you really want to do excellently that you like absolutely want to be the best. So you know in in Balto's case, one of the examples is speed. Like we are gonna. Uh, analyze the audio stream, uh, run the speech to text, run the machine learning to label that text, um, and send back recommendations to the user faster than anyone else's on planet Earth, period, because that's something that we've optimized for. So um, I think that there are, you have to find a couple dimensions that you want to be excellent in, uh, but if there's only one dimension and you're excellent on that one thing, uh, I think that that's a risk. But Tesla is actually a good example of a company that just specializes. They're kind of they're kind of strange, right? Because they're vertical. They go all the way down to like you know sourcing materials and manufacturing, uh, all the way up to like the actual distribution of their cars. And they have like this approach that says, um, you know, we want to own every component of the process so we can make sure that each piece is excellent. Uh, but then again, you know, it's one of the most highly funded car companies in the world. And, uh, you know, one of the, I think they're a trillion dollars in valuation now. Did they hit that? Um, uh, maybe I not. I don't know if they did. They won't be far away from it if they didn't. Yeah. So, I don't think they're in the trillionaire club yet or uh, a trillionaire company club, but um, uh, but they are, I believe, the most valuable car company in the world. So it's interesting that that approach of like making sure every component is excellent does create Tesla's. Uh, but on the same hand, it probably takes a whole bunch of cash and putting together, uh, you know, scientists who are the best in every single area, which is not easy uh, to do. Mm. They are they are in the trillions. 
One, yeah, they are. One trillion just over, yeah. Cool. Just just over. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting that. Yeah. Uh yeah, wow. So so that's interesting. So talking about um you mentioned their Tesla do their own research and they they try and manage every bit of the pipeline. In in, in any um industry, any technology type, you mentioned Amazon having super kind of like focused on on you know the trying to provide the best quality capabilities and stuff like that. There needs to be attention given to each individual capabilities in order to squeeze as much performance out of those capabilities as you can. Um, for someone of the scale of Amazon, for example, you know, a knowledge management that is really, 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 really good, as best as it could possibly be, is better for them than one that's average that just happens to hook up to Lex or something like that. So so all every organization that does have you know, whatever capabilities they provide, they're, they're inevitably going to try and squeeze the best out of them. And most of that starts with research. You know, if you look at, if I look at all of the most exciting companies I see coming out of the UK in particular in this space, they're all based on, um, they're all coming out of like all the boards, like, you know, professors and coming out of scientific research and academia and sort of that, like action AI and poly AI. And in the, uh, even in the US, you've got your likes of uh, zero shot bot and stuff like that, all coming out of, academic academia you know finding mm-hmm. a theory of how they can improve a certain part of the puzzle and proving that out through uh, academic studies and then taking the results of that and turn it into a product and i'll get there eventually this is a long-winded segue <laughs> to the article that you sent me today which was based on research and i've got another one from coming out of academia as well uh based on uh a company and i'll dig it up in a moment uh Artificial, I'll read the title, Artificial Intelligence Translates Thoughts into Text Using a Brain Implant. And I think we touched on this in, in, from a visioning point of view when we spoke on your Reimagining a Contact Center podcast, I think, in terms of the future of where this kind of stuff's going. But you managed to find uh, a study that has actually been done and a product that's actually in development, which is doing exactly that. Yeah. Um, so many things just came to mind, Kane. Um, I'll... I'll start a little bit actually with the academic front. Uh, Mm. I'm reading this book right now called Skin in the Game. Um, And it's this super controversial, uh, little bit arrogant, uh, he's arrogant, author called uh, Nassim uh, Taleb. I think uh, that's his name, Nassim Taleb. And uh, he has a premise in his book that says that academia actually, (laughs) actually doesn't create anything. Do I think he's right? No, but here's his premise. Academia doesn't create anything. Academia is doing like the foundational research to like kind of uncover various principles and how different things in the world work. And then when you look at the inventions, it's always then the private sector, the commercial world that looks at those discoveries and said, oh, I'm actually going to go you know, make something. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the role of, of academia and, uh, you know, private sector now, I think is, is super interesting, especially since, you know, there's been this demonization of like universities, at least in the United States, there's been this like demonization of universities over the last, let's say five years or maybe a little bit more, 10 years. Um, and the, you know, criticism is that the like budgets for administration have gone way up. Uh, which have driven costs up, but the budgets for the actual professors and the classes have stayed the same. 
So people are saying, wait a minute, universities are getting more expensive, but there's the same number of professors with the same resources. So like, why is, is the education, you know, getting more expensive? Um, so anyway, I think we have to figure out what the role is between, you know, academia and private sectors and continue to figure out, um, like how those two pair together. Uh, but the second thought I had, Kane, is, uh, you know, on, um, you know, brain machine interfaces. And I was thinking about this because I think you actually can't talk about the future of voice without talking about what a voiceless future would look like too, right? Um, so, you know, brain machine interfaces, uh, which I think, by the way, we're going to see in our lifetimes in some way, shape or form. You know, the article I sent you said that somebody could think um, and create text with their brain and be able to transcribe this brain, these thoughts with 97% accuracy, which is astounding. So I think if we, you know, we have to picture a world and says, well, what happens when everyone is transcribing their thoughts with 97% accuracy? What happens to the existing media that we have to communicate like voice? I think there'll be a place for both of them, but I think the future of voice is very much tied to what happens in the non-voice world as well. And uh, I'm curious to see how those two evolve. What do you think? Mm, I think it's it's obviously it's coming, isn't it? You know, and I know that you know Elon Musk has been talking about the neural link and stuff like that. And I think that it's it's definitely something that's coming. How far away it would be, I'm not sure. Like when I look at that article um from the independent um essentially it says that researchers at the university of california have developed an ai to decipher up to 250 words in real time from a set of between 30 and 50 sentences so it seems as though what they've done is they've they've kind of created 30 to 50 sentences constructed of 250 words so the sentences may well contain lots of the same words they may, I don't know, I haven't looked at this in, in so much detail. The link to the study is in there. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, I imagine what they've probably done is something like, had the sentences kind of written down, had someone hooked up to some sort of like brain machine interface or whatever, had them read the sentence to themselves in the head and tried to then map brain activity to words and sentence structure. And then once they've done that and they're able to train their kind of brain machine interface <laughs> on the patterns that happen when people read the sentence they then try and do that without the sentence being there and just see if they can monitor the brain activity and pick it up so so i think long story short is that it's working in a seemingly working with a very small set of um data for a very small set of words and a very small set of sentences however if you've ever seen the um shoebox example from IBM, they created the shoebox in something like 1960 or 1959, I think it was, which was the first kind of machine that could ever actually translate uh, speech into text. And at the time, it could only it could only process numbers zero to nine, and it could process yes, no, and a bunch of like calculations like subtract plus uh, equals and stuff like that. It was something like. 16 or 20 words or something like that and so when you see this you think oh well you know it's been probably a very um prescriptive piece of research as far as you know feeding uh users with data monitoring brain activity and then from then on can we map that brain activity to those sentences later but in the grand scheme of things 
it's a little bit like IBM Shoebox in 1961 or 1959, whatever it was, which is that it's the very beginning of being able to take words out of people's heads, <laughs> which, which if that's it, that just shows that, you know, it's, it's beginning basically. Yeah. Kane, I think that's one of the biggest unknowns, you know, in technology right now, period. It's one of the things that actually, as we're all going about trying to live our lives, something that we need to be thinking about, or I don't know if we need to think about it, but it helps to understand. And that is how fast is technology actually going to progress? So if we took the shoebox example and said, okay, you can go from 60 years um, from yes, no, and zero through nine, and plus minus to uh, full real-time uh, transcription uh, remotely, not even on a on a giant server, but like you know, sending it up to the cloud with multi-tenant. You send it to multiple different cloud providers that all do it different bits. Like that's what can happen in sixty years. So then, you know, what we we kind of have two questions, and we say, okay. Well, is it going to be another 60 years where we say this is the start of a, a linear 60-year period? Or is the fact that Silicon Valley, uh, I think, uh, really started kicking up with Cisco, I think it was in the 70s, is when Silicon Valley started like coming into you know, existence. And then venture capital in its modern form, where you, know, you have these uh, funds that are uh, bringing together a bunch of limited partners that all you know, invest in, in, a, in a fund, in a pool of, of, of money. And then the uh, general partners of the fund are then looking for, invest- for uh, uh, like high growth opportunities, investing in a number of them to get a big return. That sort of model has only existed since like maybe the uh, early 90s, I think, uh, or, or late 80s. So then you say, you know, we have all of this capital. And I think the stat I, I heard recently is that uh, 40% of the currency that the United States has ever put into circulation has been printed in the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about how much money that means exists out there in the world. So you have all this financing, you have a, a tech community that you know has never existed before. You have uh, you know all of this capital that's out there in the world. Do we think it's going to be a straight 60 years? And my guess is it's probably not. It's probably exponential. It's probably going to be like a third of that or you know you know imagine a world where it's a sixth of that. That would be crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, sixth of that would be you know a decade. So I think that that's what we're all trying to figure out is like how fast are things moving in the world right now? But I think it, we can all feel it's, it feels like things are moving faster than they ever have. Mm, absolutely. I mean, if I if I take another sentence from that article, which is we trained a recurrent neural network to encode each sentence length of neural activity into an abstract representation and then to decode this representation word by word into an English sentence. Now, there's a bunch of stuff in there that didn't exist in the 60s. You know, you can't just train a recurrent neural network in the 60s because <laughs> they were they were laying the foundations for what all this stuff was being built on top of. So the fact that the technology is already at a point where you can build a neural network to try and simulate brain activity based on a, a few sentences that's already there so you know it's it's can't be another 60 years because all the fundamental technology I, maybe not i don't know the details i imagine there's technology that needs to be created and, and breakthroughs that need to happen in order to make this you know scalable to the point where something like speech recognition is today but where the starting point is an entirely different starting point than it was 
60 years ago. And it's, it's Moore's law, isn't it? That the, the growth of technology grows exponentially as you develop the capabilities uh, and things like that, you know? So it's like, yeah, it's, I don't think it'll be 60 years, but it's hard. I think it's probably because something like that feels a little bit hard to imagine simply because you can't imagine the willingness of the people to adopt it yet. It's a bit like it's a bit like I, I compare it a little bit to Amazon Alexa, where um, the first time that I come across Alexa was in something like 2017 or something like that. And immediately for me, I'm thinking, oh my God, all these possibilities running through your head. You know what I mean? This could be like your own personal assistant that you'll have 24 seven and you'll be able to get all sorts done. You'll be able to do absolutely everything. You will never need to touch your phone again. But the reality is that the general population just were not really ready for that quite happy just to control music with it right now and maybe they'll be happy with that for the next five years you know the growth of these kind of personal assistants as far as their ability to get all kinds of stuff done for us is beginning to kind of you know show that it's not it's not quick as far as not the technology the technology is there you know the technology is there for these these assistant platforms uh, to be able to do pretty much anything that you need them to do really it's that the customer behavior and the businesses that need to move in line with it as well holds it back but it's the it's the customer behavior part that i think is uh, a factor in that how quickly will people want to use their assistant to check the bank balance because then there's a trust question there's a privacy question who else has access to my bank details how many people want to shop on amazon because i don't want amazon knowing everything i'm buying from argos or tesco or whatever it might be and so it's like i wonder how much of the limiting factors of the growth of this kind of technology will be customer behavior can i think that's like that is the question um you know i think that we have the resources to create more technology, better technology, like way faster than ever. Uh, we also have the business processes. Like if you think about like how people invented things in the 1800s, uh, you had an inventor with a workshop and you all kind of, I don't know, I'm making this up, but this is what <laughs> at least I've seen in media. You know, you're all sitting there and you, you, you put a bunch of ideas on scratch and you have 10,000 know, uh, attempts to create the light bulb. Um, but think about how much more advanced just business processes and human collaboration has gotten. Not even from the technical side, but the idea of like organizations with complex hierarchies and you know SLAs, service level agreements, when you can expect to do something and get a response back, and uh, you know goal setting and objectives, and you know I, I think in some ways that's definitely constrained us. Um, you know, some people kind of see it as bureaucratic, and there is an element of that is unnecessarily bureaucratic, but it's also like we've not just invented technology, but we, we've invented systems for working together to invent technology. So I think that our pace of being able to invent technology is like here. And I think that uh, what we're going to see is that the pace of accepting technology, of society catching up and being comfortable with it is going to be here. Um, so I do think that the limiting factor is actually not how fast can we create, but how fast will people accept? Mm, yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. And it creates a challenge because... I think that in the culture, in the, in the culture of technology today, I think technology plays such a crucial role in most organizations. I mean, I've worked in digital transformation, in the digital transformation space for probably, I don't know, nearly a decade almost. Um, and the, the, 
the thing about that is when you work with a bunch of different companies, the main thing that I was trying to get people to understand, even government organizations that pick bins up and repair streetlights and process passports, it's getting them to understand that they are a technology company because everything they do is foundationally built on technology and all the services that they deliver increasingly are digitized from end to end. And so most organizations these days depend on technology and in fact i would say are technology companies even if they don't develop their own technology they certainly bring in technology from lots of different places stitch them all together in a way that's unique to their business or their culture and then manage and maintain that technology over time and so most organizations have some degree of technological foundations i would say um and the pace of technological advancement is so rapid as we've kind of been alluding to and talking about already um And part of the speed of which technology has developed that creates that kind of culture of growth, which, you know, you mentioned Silicon Valley a couple of times and Silicon Valley, whether it's startup culture, whether it's kind of like, you know, a new product that's launched or whatever it might be, the culture of business in general is growth, 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 growth. And that kind of culture is wedded in between most technology companies. And so I'm interested in seeing from what, what essentially happens when the growth of the company which is so foundational to the company, starts to collide with the acceptance of tech, new technology from customers. As you mentioned there, if customers don't want to adopt things like brain implants, but your company is on the forefront of innovating this kind of stuff, how do you you know, uh, pursue growth whilst at the same time keeping pace with customer needs and expectations? Um which is is going to be an interesting. It'd be interesting to watch how Elon Musk progresses this because that's kind of one of the things he's working on, isn't it? Yeah, um, Kane. I think that this pandemic uh, kind of like put what we're willing to accept and the things that we're willing to try with technology, and it put it all in a jar and just shook it up. <laughs> where I think that we had a bunch more, you know. Uh, reservations saying we would never do that. I would never do that. That's uh, a privacy violation. That is, you know, too virtual. It's it's not physical enough. I want something tactile. It's, you know, uh, too mechanical versus human. I think we had a lot of it's too, too, too uh, before the pandemic. And I think that a lot of people really shifted their expectations. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick example, Kane, uh, uh, Postmates, uh, which is, you know, now... Um, uh, you know, Uber Eats, Postmates. Uh, before the pandemic, I refused, <laughs> refused to get anything on Postmates because I was like, I'm going to pay a delivery charge plus a service fee plus a tip and have, you know, some lukewarm food delivered that I could just you know, go get. I mean, there's no way. There's no way. And and do I want to, you know, be a person that's constantly having food just dropped off at my door? Isn't part of the experience to go out and get it and you have that journey and then you you talk to the person, you say, I'd like my food, please, and they give it to you and you bring it back and then, you know, you're the hero for the family. <laughs> and then the pandemic hit and I'm ordering Postmates like three times a week. Um, <laughs> but that was a firm stance I had. And I think a lot of us just like dropped those stances and said, you know what? We're a little bit more comfortable with technology entering our lives than we were a few years ago. And I think even you know, the announcement of Meta, um, like what a crazy concept to say there's going to be you know, augmented reality where you're having a physical conversation. There's your buddy Joe right next to you. 
And then there's an AR projection of Kane next to you on the other side. Um, and, and, and that is being, uh, you know, that is being advertised by one of the largest technology companies on earth, the absolute king and emperor of all social media is saying that that's the future. And the fact that people aren't revolting right now, I think means that people are saying, all right, let's see what you got. (laughs) So I think that our acceptance level is higher than it was, you know, two years ago by a lot. Yeah, and also complaining doesn't get anybody anywhere anyway. doesn't change anything. You can complain as much as you want about restrictions, about pandemics, about masks, about vaccines. It doesn't change anything anyway. And so I think that you're right that there's just an acceptance level, which is, okay, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, fair enough. So I'm going to be having a meeting with Mark. He's going to be over the other side of the world. I'm going to be sat in my front room. We might want to order a pizza. And so we'll we'll spin up the virtual dominoes that will appear on over the top of the fireplace and we'll just kind of make our orders and, and all that kind of stuff there. You know, I think it's... Uh, yeah, I, I, you're right in terms of the pandemic changing people's acceptance. I mean, I, I was I was using the, so over here it's called Deliveroo. There's Uber Eats as well, but there's Deliveroo tends to be fairly popular, and another one called Just Eat. And we we use that and used to use that from time to time. But a good example of of that change in behaviour is my mother-in-law, who would never shop online. You know, grocery, we, we, we've been getting groceries delivered for years, you know, and it's just the headache of going into a big, you know, shopping mall as it is or supermarket or whatever and, and kind of like just trying to figure out what to buy and a big shopping trolley that you're, you know, spending half your morning just trying to get food into a box just to take it home. Um, and so, but the pandemic meant that, you know, people couldn't leave the house. So the only option was to order online. And now, you know, there's Marks and Spencer's bags being dropped off every second day. There's Morrison's deliveries happening all the time. There's Amazon boxes flying around their house and stuff. And that, that's basically all they do now is they shop online. So it's brought forward, I would say, behavior. And I think it was Forrester that did a piece of research that said the pandemic brought forward certain behaviors that weren't expected to be adopted by certain demographics for another five years. Mm-hmm. Kane, I think that the positive feedback loop of that of those behaviors that, you know, we are using technology in some new way that we weren't expecting, and then it arrives fast and convenient, and we're like, huh, that's good. And then you say, well, I, I can't go out and go grocery shopping, you know, because of the pandemic, so I'll do it a few more times. And then you go, huh, actually, I, I can have a pretty fast routine. Why do I ever go out grocery shopping? Um, I, I saw this uh, poll... Um, I think it was uh, yesterday that was talking about um, uh, people return to work, and you know the the basic uh, uh, point of of the poll, and then you know, the article that came with it is like people we kind of need to come to grips. Like it's different now. There, there we are not going back to the world as it was before. There's no uh, return to office. There's not going to be some big return to office that's happening, and everyone goes back to the offices. And you're remote a little bit, but really in person. Like we need to come to grips. That's like the world has changed, and people have moved on and rewired their habits. Um, and I think that that's mostly true. I think that, and we could talk a lot about return to office. So maybe I'll you know mm. do that one in a second. Um, but I think that some of the habits are like here to stay, especially when it comes to these like very tightly self-reinforcing, you know, habits that technology can, can, can make possible. Yeah. Have you read the book, uh, Hooked by Nia Eyal? 
No, I haven't. Oh, it's fantastic. It's essentially, it's very similar to, there's a book called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And um, it's a wicked book. It basically explains what a habit is, how it's formed and how they stick around and how to change them. Um, But Hooked basically builds on top of that and puts a product lens on it in terms of how do you form how do you build habit forming products basically? And it analyzes a bunch of stuff that social media networks did when they were getting started and stuff like that. Arguably what led to us depending on these so heavily and also potentially responsible for creating a whole bunch of social anxiety and potentially suicides as well. But <laughs> the the fundamental kind of part is, is around kind of like habit formation and, and with habits, there is three kind of component parts. One is a trigger, the other is a routine, and the third thing is a reward. And so most of the time when you do something that is habitual, you don't really think about it because the triggers are so ingrained that your routine is performed before you even realize what's happening. And your reward is very subconscious often. So if you think about brushing your teeth, the trigger might be, you know, you've just put your clothes on, or you just got out of the shower, or you've just got dried, or you're in the bathroom, or whatever the trigger is for an individual that there is a there's a trigger the routine is brushing your teeth which happens all the time and the reward is feeling clean basically and that's arguably speaking and not arguably speaking but one of the studies done in the power of habit book was all about how colgate were one of the first companies to add mint into their toothpaste because it made people's mouth feel different and feel clean you don't need to have any flavor in toothpaste there's no flavor to the actual stuff that cleans your teeth it was put in there specifically to create that reward feeling and so anyway going back to that kind of pandemic example the trigger the hardest part of creating a habit is is uh, creating a new habit is identifying a new trigger in this case the pandemic made people hungry and you can't leave the house so there's a trigger I'm hungry and I can't leave the house. We need food next week, we can't leave the house. And then the routine is different and uncomfortable for some people. But you touched on basically what the reward is, which is convenience and speed. And once you've experienced the convenience and speed of shopping online for certain things from certain providers, like next day delivery or same day delivery from Amazon, for example, it's very difficult to to forget about that reward, especially next time you go into a supermarket. It's like, where the hell is the ice cream in this place? Mm. <laughs> you know, it's going to take me forever to find the ice cream. Where the hell is the ice cream? Online, it's just search for ice cream and it's there. So there's a whole bunch of micro habits as well that come into play when, when you know, those habits are being formed. But yeah, the, the pandemic has been a huge, huge player in, in making people change habits, often habits that are, that are quite hard to change, like where you shop. Kane, it's, uh, it's so interesting. The the ice cream example you gave is particularly interesting because you're being punished for doing it the old way, right? <laughs> Not only is there a positive reinforcement for the convenience, but then you go to the store and they say, sorry, we're out of everything. Yeah. <laughs> Supply chain. <laughs> <laughs> Supply chain. And we don't have anything yeah. that you were looking for. And, and you come back. This actually happened to me about a week ago where um, you know, I'm, I'm fine, but I was one of the many millions of people in the U.S. that, that got COVID. Um, and you know, I, uh, you know, we were you know, in the, uh, the recovery period or whatever, and um, my fiance said, hey, can you go get some Mucinex? You know, and I go to the store, and everything in the store um, is like the – there's no Mucinex. It's like the, they have a handful of like, uh, you know, basic store brands. 
and I come back with not Mucinex, and she, and she goes, what about Mucinex? And I was like, well, this is the one I, I got that was closest. And she said, well, the active ingredient in the one you got isn't the same active ingredient I was looking for. <laughs> and a piece of me is like, shoot, I am never going to go try to you know, uh, buy a pharmaceutical in person again. So there's a there's a real punishment aspect, uh, especially when your social circle is uh, is putting that punishment on you too. <laughs> it is it is it's interesting it's yeah it's crazy. Um, going back to what we were saying around um, the kind of like rapid advancement of technology and stuff like that, I've just pulled up this. I wanted to talk to you about this. There is a, a video on LinkedIn. I'll put it in the uh, in the show notes. I'll, and I don't know if you've seen it or not, but basically it's a video of. Uh, it's it's a deep fake basically, and it's a video of a guy. Let me see if I can show it. Actually, I might be able to actually show this thing. Give me one sec. Here we go. Let me see if I can. Uh... Is this the Morgan oh, Freeman that. one? Yeah. yeah. Yep. If I move this down a bit, people will be able to see this a bit better. So basically, uh, I don't know if you hear the sound. Let me know if you can hear the sound here. You get that? Not yet. You're not hearing the sound. No, right, but I so, can I, I can pretend. <laughs> all right, <laughs> I was more thinking about the people listening to it on the podcast, so you can't hear the sound, so so it's it's pointless. But I'll put the uh, I'll put the the link to this in the show notes anyway. Basically, it's a video, a square video of Morgan Freeman on the top and this guy underneath, and this guy underneath is talking, and the image of Morgan Freeman at the top is absolutely bang on, uh, basically saying everything he's saying. It's like. Um, more, it's like it's like the two videos are in sync basically it turns out what it is it's a deep fake it's an ai generated version of morgan freeman it's synced up to the guy so every time he moves his head it moves morgan freeman's head and his voice is being translated into morgan freeman's voice and it is absolutely i don't know whether it's terrifying or whether it's massively impressive when i seen it i was just blown away thinking it was absolutely hugely impressive i don't know what your thoughts on it it sounds as like you've seen it hugely impressive and uh you know this this it goes to show that we're going to need to build a whole new set of skills as people navigating the world of technology because you know right now you know in the US and I think it's a little bit prevalent globally um, no one knows what's true anymore like everyone you know they're just knowing what is the truth is is so difficult and everything feels like an opinion. It feels like there's another side and it feels like you just don't know what is the actual reality. Mm. And, you know, when do you start seeing, you know, these deep fakes come about? Um, people are going to have to train themselves to consistently ask the question, oh, is that real or is that a deep fake? And there's going to be some extra process that you take where you go online and maybe you type in the exact words and you know how we have Snopes to, you know, say whether uh, something's, uh, you know, debunked or not. Maybe there's, is it a deep fake? And you type in, you know, the words, it's like, this is actually recognized as a deep fake. Morgan Freeman was on the beach when that you know, supposed video happened. Um, but there's going to be a lot of little things like that we're going to have to train ourselves to do. Um, you know, around like skepticism for what is real and what's not. And then also going back to the concept of being hooked, um, you know, that's one of the really interesting parts of technology today is that the companies recognize that they're hooking us and the consumers recognize that we're being hooked. We're all on the same page. No one's like, you're doing what? No <laughs> way. So how do we as, 
consumers just like decide when we're comfortable being hooked and when we're not comfortable. And you even see, I think services like uh, Instagram just put this new uh, timer. I think it's a two hour timer that if you've been scrolling for two hours, it says, hey, you want to take a break? So it's almost like the the mutual agreement with Instagram and the and the users is like two hours is about the right amount for you to use our service, but we're gonna have to keep negotiating that I think and be very aware of of these interactions. Yeah, I think two hours is a bit too long. I would I would drop that down, but <laughs> but but you're right though. Like, but the the, the thing is that I've noticed. Um, not that I've noticed necessarily because I don't really use Facebook, but through conversations with people, family, friends, things like that. I, because I don't know if it's because we work in this space, but you know, for, for people that work in the technology space, it's always been obvious that the product is the person using Facebook and that Facebook monetizes through advertising. Everyone in our kind of sphere understands that Facebook makes money through advertising and therefore understanding its users and being able to target those users with ads is basically what the business is. Um, but it's unbelievable now, even now, you know, the social dilemma was out. There's been a whole bunch of stuff out there around how, you know, the, the I suppose the, um, what am I trying to say? The kind of like uh, potential motives behind the company becoming more generalized knowledge. But it's unbelievable how many people still don't really realize that is actually the case. Some people still don't realize that the, the, the adverts that they see on Facebook are very specific adverts targeting their specific uh, profile, you know, based on their interests, their behavior, their network, that kind of stuff. And so it reminds me a little bit of like, some people still don't realize that that's the case with Facebook. Some people are still, you know, probably maybe, I don't know if it's in this country, in the US, more developed nations, but certainly things like email, bank scams and stuff like that are still happening. Uh, whether it's a human behind it or an AI behind it doesn't really matter because it's still people engaging with digital technology being scammed essentially not being able to spot a spam email from a genuine one and so i think that there's generally for us that have been brought up with technology always had the internet always use computers you can spot a spam email you can you understand the, the motives behind instagram you understand all this kind of stuff natively but it's difficult to raise awareness and teach people how to spot a deep fake because one, as you mentioned already, no one knows what's true or not. Two, you can't actually reach everyone. <laughs> even mm -hmm. if you wanted to, even if the government wanted to, you can't reach everybody. The government can't even reach everybody. You know, I know that everyone knows about COVID, but there'll be some people who haven't been specifically targeted with vaccines and all that kind of stuff. And so I think the, the, the challenge is huge, basically, in terms of the ability for us humans to be able to spot what we're now talking about, which is essentially AI being used for um, either scams or to influence us in a negative way. Yeah. Kane, it's such a good point that you can't reach everyone. Because I think that we all almost vision, we envision this day where everyone knows the truth. We're all, it's all clear. We all know it. But there's going to be some person, you know, who, uh, you know, was living on an island for the last uh, 20 years um, who comes out and says, oh, so, you know, how's Reagan doing as president? You know, <laughs> um, like that, that's always going to happen in some way, shape or form. Um, so, but I think the question then is like, what is the critical mass and how do we reach enough people that like society is moving in the right direction? And I think that you know, one of the things we're experiencing in the, in the U.S. is that 50-50 or 45-55 is not enough critical mass. 
You can't have an organized society where, you know, uh, nearly half the people believe one thing and the other half believe that the exact opposite thing is true. <laughs> like how do those people transact and, and, and move things forward if they aren't even on the same page about like what the, the reality is? So, mm-hmm. you know, then the question is, is 60-40 enough? Is 70-30 enough? And then what happens if the 70% of people believe something that's not true? And the thirty percent, the dissenters, are the ones that really believe the true thing. Um, mm. You know, what if it really was that was Morgan Freeman, and there's a disinformation campaign that that's his deep fake? <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> did you see the? Um, <clears throat> did you? You probably wouldn't have seen it because it's not it's not really something that I don't suppose would interest the US. But did you ever hear about the way that Brexit in the UK was handled and how it came about? Bits and pieces. We, we definitely, okay. a little bit of that comes over. So so there was a referendum basically asking the whole of the United Kingdom, do you want to leave Europe or do you want to stay in Europe? Right? That was it. And what actually happened was, there's a guy called Dominic Cummins and a bunch of people who were really savvy with social media. Through a bunch of analysis, what they did is they identified that profile in the country running polls, all that kind of stuff, they worked out that broadly speaking, there's probably about half of the people in the country that are going to want to stay in Europe. And then broadly speaking, there's probably about half of the country that are going to want to leave Europe, right? So it's a little bit, I suppose, like a presidency race, you know, every year or every four years, or every eight years in the US, you know, when there's a new presidency candidate and campaign, it's usually, it is kind of like almost 50-50 in parts, isn't it? And, and one state could sway the whole thing. That was basically where we were with Brexit, exactly like that. One half of the country on one side, one half of the country on the other side. Through using things like Facebook, the team identified that there's probably around about three million people in the country that are persuadable. Don't ask me exactly how they did it. I can't, I can't remember. It was all to do with a company called Cambridge Analytica, which essentially stole people's data. They basically, I don't know if they hacked Facebook or they did something dodgy where they were able to get hold of people. Oh, that was it. They got people to to fill in a survey online, basically on Facebook. And those people that filled in this survey, they were able to get their data and profile their behavior and do a whole bunch of crazy stuff with it. Anyway, what happened is Cambridge Analytica identified 3 million people in the country, more or less, not necessarily by name, but certainly towns. This town has a high proportion of these people. That town has a high proportion of these people. And what they did, the entire campaign, yes, there was big kind of like TV ads. There was big kind of like campaigns. There was roadshows up and down the country from both sides, stay and leave. But behind the scenes, what was happening is that they were running a whole bunch of uh, Facebook ads and they were spending millions and millions. I think they spent something like $2 billion on on uh, Facebook ads, specifically targeting these 3 million people and the, or the profile of that kind of person and the people who they associate with. Turns out Brexit was voted for, and the the margin was something like two million people. It's like fifty percent vote, forty nine percent voted to to stay, fifty one percent voted to leave, and it was the two million swing that ended up kind of doing it in the end, um, which is crazy because going back to the point of what we're saying about you know can you reach everyone can you educate everyone about something like deep fakes about ethical AI about how to spot a, a potentially malicious AI whatever the case may be how do you kind of like how do you find truth, basically, which is that I don't actually think that 
that that's ever going to ever going to be the case. I don't ever think there's ever going to that's ever going to happen. I think we're in the same way as you were mentioning that um, you know the thing that you were reading that says that now COVID is just COVID. Returning back to the office is never going to happen. I honestly think that society is like that. Society, I think, is just divided, and it gets even harder because some people all they want to do is tune into po- podcasts like this, and they want to consume content like they're interested in. Some people just want to, you know, watch games on Twitch. Some people just want to look at, you know, I don't know, fitness videos on Instagram. Some people are really interested in pottery. Some people are really interested in chemistry. And now with the internet, there is so much content that that fits right around your specific niche that if you just wanted to watch videos all day and learn all day about backgammon, then you could, you know, and you could probably make a living doing that and you could probably just surround yourself with that. And so not only is it the difficulty of reaching everybody, it's that everybody has so much choice because there is just so much available that it's almost nothing impossible to to reach everybody with whatever that truth is. What an incredible example! I I think uh, I think it's a really scary and profound, but probably accurate point, which is that we're not about to have some great unification. You know, like the narratives are are out there. People believe what they believe. Um, the ability to push any single belief is stronger than ever. Like if you think about, um, you know, before the internet, before mass communication, um, you know, how did you get your ideas out there? You stood on a soapbox. As many people as you could yell at, you know, heard your message, you know, and then maybe you were lucky enough that you had a press and you were a newspaper and as fast as you could print those papers and distribute those papers uh, and whoever you could physically deliver those papers to could get your message. Um, but now, regardless of where anybody is in the world, a single authority can at pretty much no cost distribute a message to anyone in the world at, at little to no cost. Um, so it seems very easy to get a narrative into the world. It seems like maybe you know if that's the case, Kane, then what we want to do is actually, this is kind of crazy, but maybe be more divided, but not more divided among two options, more divided among 30. Like if we're going to be divided, we might as well have a whole bunch of different things we're divided about. So it takes away this us versus them. It's hard mm-hmm. to be mad at the 29 other viewpoints about COVID. It's easy to be mad at the other guys. Um, mm. so maybe we just need, you know, if we're going to, you know, go into those pockets and we have some people, you know, who love gaming and some people who love being on the metaverse and some people who love sports and some people who, you know, love this president or that president, maybe the answer is that we need to almost create more divisions, if you will. So one single division doesn't sway everything. I don't know. Mm. I just came up with that now. That could be a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think more perspectives is definitely a good idea. There's a really yeah. good video on uh, YouTube. The guy is called CPG Gray. Have you come across any of his content before or not? I don't think so. CPG Gray. It does loads of random videos explaining things. Like One of them is how he explains how all traffic is human-made. And if there wasn't any humans and all the vehicles were autonomous, there just would not be any traffic, no matter how many cars are on the road. It's a really fascinating thing. But one of the things he also does is he explains the political system in the UK. Now, I know this isn't necessarily related to technology, but it's it's related, I think, to how people's opinions are formed and shaped, which I think is important for the adoption of technology and the creation of products using technology. So. Essentially, he did an example of if you had five political parties, so it's not your 30 different perspectives, but it's a a version of it, five different 
political parties or five different opinions of the truth and you asked everybody to vote on them, what ends up happening over time, and I forget exactly the details of how, how it arises, but he explains it all in tremendous detail in this, in this video, which I'll link to again in the show notes. Um, what ends up happening is one party wins or one opinion wins and another one comes second. And so the one that wins ends up gaining control Therefore, they have more exposure, more power. It's a little bit like, you know, if you think about um, put the big five technology companies together, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Apple, Facebook. If, if, if they were to start now today from scratch, imagine take all the products away, take everything away, just have them start now today. One of them will end up becoming a market leader in whatever kind of industry or product they're selling inevitably with that becomes more revenue more customers therefore more money to be able to reinvest back and therefore you have an element of power and therefore you're then at an advantage and so play the same cycle out again a new product is released the one that's in the lead or a political campaign is in the lead has a better chance really because they can reach more people they can do more work and the second one has just you know, maybe it's a bit less, but certainly more than two and three. And so what ends up happening is over time, over a number of different cycles, is the one starts edging out in front and the two starts edging out alongside it. And but because there's two of them, they keep balancing each other out. One year one side will win, the other year the other side will win. And all the other parties or products in this instance, that's different with products, I think, because markets have catered for lots of different opinions and, and needs and stuff. But I think the analogy still works. That that lots of the 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 uh, what ends up happening is the two parties grow and the rest of them end up fighting for scraps. And that's basically the, the state of UK politics is that there's two big parties, there's loads of other parties, but none of them have the reach, the resources or the bandwidth to be able to reach as many people to change as many opinions, which is why you end up with a two-party race all the time, which is a... So I think in principle, that concept of bringing more opinions, bringing more ideas is absolutely 110%, I think, what's needed to show people that there's another way of thinking about a problem or thinking about the world or thinking about technology or whatever it is. It's just that the practicalities of doing it are difficult when you have <laughs> market leaders and and companies or, or political parties or whatever with exposure and resources that dominate the narrative. Yeah. You can even think about just like the concept of like an incumbency advantage why is being an incumbent an advantage? Like theoretically, it should be a disadvantage because people can point to all the bad things you did. Um, but there's just the exposure. There's the familiarity. There's the fact that that uh, truly, you know, the one of the uh, things I remember reading is that people can actually picture you as the leader better. They go, oh yeah, Kane just kind of looks more like a leader because you because that person is the leader at that moment. Um, and I, I think that incumbency advantage is true with technology. That incumbency advantage is true with ideas. Um, but interestingly, uh, I'll kind of counter that for a second. With tech, a lot of times incumbency is a disadvantage. Like you can think about the concept of tech debt. You know, the fact that you built a system five or ten years ago when the coding languages has changed and the the way uh, the people set up their architectures has changed and you don't want to get rid of the old thing you built, but you really need to do it the new way. Um, so they call that, you know, technical debt. Um, and you could even think about uh, the idea of folks who are, um, like, you know, in technology companies lingering to old ideas 
old ways of doing things. And the people who are slow to adopt the cloud, uh, even the behemoths, um, you know, you could think about like, you know, SAP who, you know, got all things considered beat by Salesforce. Um, and, you know, SAP was the behemoth and, uh, you know, didn't make the transition to, to cloud uh, nearly fast enough. And Salesforce was the new scrappy entrant um, that it was all cloud because they had a different way of seeing things. So, Anyway, I wonder if, you know, in some ways, the volatility of the system is increasing, whether the chance for someone, because you can come on in and reach a billion people with your message, whether that actually makes it a little bit more volatile, makes it more likely to have shakeups where, you know, you can be the big leader, but someone with just a good idea and a ton of capital can just come in and quickly execute and, and be the best, even though the other person has a lot of the traditional advantages. Mm, mm, that's very interesting. I, I think I'd probably agree up, up until, well, there's a few things that could happen, isn't there? Up until a point... I think there's, there is a number of companies that exist today that are just, it's like the banks in 20, 2008. They're just too big to fail. Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, you know, Facebook, they're just, they're too big to fail. And so if I think about this space that, that we're involved in, particularly looking at AI, I think that there is tremendous scope here for that kind of scrappiness, as you mentioned, you know, people can build products, they can get them adopted, they can deliver value and then craft themselves a, a, a position, basically. But then at some point, I kind of envision, I even see things like Salesforce might be getting to the point where they're a bit big, but coming like Genesis, for example, you'd think market leader in the cloud contact center space, looking to try and build a huge company, but they could be an acquisition target for Microsoft. And so it's like, there's definitely going to be, I think, more volatility and that will continue. But I think what sometimes happens is that as markets mature, sometimes things fail because it's a bit like WordPress on a, on a micro scale. WordPress on a micro scale is accessibility to publishing for everybody, which means that all of, all of the journalists and all of the established media outlets now have competition, not necessarily in terms of covering the same stuff, but other things that people can read. And there's just so much of it. But the thing is, when you open the floodgates, you inevitably decrease quality. So there's so many shit blogs out there, for example, people that can't write, <laughs> et cetera. And the same sort of thing happens, I think, with technology is that when you have technology that's um, quite abundant, AI technologies is abundant. You could build a product on Azure if you wanted to. You could build a product on AWS. You could use you know, isolated capabilities from other providers to build a product with, which some companies have. Um, but I wonder whether that volatility and opportunity over time ends up consolidating as the, the lower quality things, which inevitably will exist, get faded out because the market decides. And then the ones who start creating a really kind of decent brand and decent name, do they become acquisition targets? I don't know. What do you think? I think they do. Um, it's funny because I think everyone's an acquisition target because acquisitions are so massive these days, mm, mm. right? And I always look back to like, you know, LinkedIn being acquired for, what was it, 24 billion by Microsoft. Mm, mm. And, you know, Genesis uh, just raised uh, a round of capital. I think it was like 500 million on a 22 billion valuation. I think that was it. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So uh, first of all, massive. What a massive round of capital and what a massive uh, you know, valuation. You go, oh my God, at that valuation, no one could acquire them except someone like you know, <laughs> Microsoft acquiring LinkedIn or Salesforce acquiring Slack. Um, so I, I think that uh, you know, when the opportunity is attractive enough and Zoom you know, tr- uh, worked to acquire you know, 5.9 earlier this year and, you know, and, and my understanding is that that fell through um, because the shareholders felt like the offer was the valuation was not high enough, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I, I believe that they were uh, you know paying. I'm trying to remember what the the multiple was on revenue, um, but it was uh, oh uh, five nine was actually at that time, and they they still are um, you know not profitable. So they had uh, a giant valuation for uh, you know a company that wasn't profitable at the time, and still the upside in that market and the upside for five nine was big enough that the investors said the valuation isn't enough. So mm-hmm. like when when people are are paying you know fourteen I think that that was what they were offered or something fourteen point eight or something fourteen billion plus valuations and it's still not enough for a company that at that time is not generating profits. Um, I think it says that people are looking so far into the future about what these things could be and how the opportunity could materialize that that's what they're banking on because they're not doing it on free cash flow. Mm, mm, interesting, which is nice to to be honest because I think that from mostly from like organizations perspective, companies that want to utilize tools and, and platforms like Five9 and Genesis and Balto and all of those kind of solutions that that are being created there's so much short-term thinking that happens which is that you know we want a point solution in in the next three months and they're not really thinking long term or strategically about the direction of the business and everyone's just trying to you know submit budgets for the next 12 months rather than thinking about the next three to five years and you know there's a whole bunch of short-term thinking i think that happens um in organizations broadly speaking and across industries but it's it's interesting and refreshing, I think, to hear that observation about, you know, these companies that are finding success, whether they're profitable or not, having that kind of longer term focus, because, you know, with with the, that kind of volatility, as you mentioned, and, and so much funding is being poured into this kind of space, it's literally, I think I counted something like two trillion, um, or was it? No, it wasn't two trillion. It was it was well in excess of two billion over the last twelve months. That about, I would say, I think something like forty companies raised something like that. Um, so it, it's just, it's just, it's crazy the amount of activity that's happening and how fast things move. Um, but at the same time, it's like how, yeah, keeping your eye on that kind of long term vision, which is going to change inevitably because things are moving so fast. Kane, I think it's about to be a renaissance, a tech renaissance is <laughs> right now. It is. It is. And it's a nice time to be part of it. It is. Well, let's wrap this thing up. Do you want to uh, plug uh, our podcast real quick? Indeed. Take it away. Yeah. Cool. So uh, you know, our podcast is Reimagining the Contact Center, and you can uh, find it on, on Balto's website at balto.ai. And ours is VUX World, and you can find that at VUX.world. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Mark. It's been fantastic. I think this format's worked um, and a good opportunity for us both who, you know, we're both companies working in a very similar space, uh, you know, uh, trying to educate, trying to uh, raise awareness about the value of technology and, and AI solutions and things like that. And this has been, this has been good. We should definitely do it again. 
Kane, love it. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep doing this. Um, I think it'll be fun. Indeed, indeed. So uh, for those that are tuning in, this has been, uh, we didn't have a name for it really, but I called it Shoot the Shiz because that's kind of what we were talking about. But I don't know whether we need to brand it or not, but essentially it'll be a monthly thing that me and Mark do where we hop on and we share our perspectives rather than VUX World typically is kind of deep dives into uh, AI solutions, deep dives into customer experience automation and business innovation and stuff like that. Likewise, reimagining a contact center is what it says on the tin, looking at ways and means in which organizations can level up their contact center experiences and improve customer experience uh, with a focus on technology this kind of series is a little bit of a chance for us to kind of zoom out a little bit and look at wider technology trends wider customer behavior trends and how all of that relates to the kind of work that we do in the world that we live in so this has been an absolute pleasure and we'll definitely do it again it has we'll talk soon kane cool all right see everybody see you bye now